This is Rina by Eliyahu with my co-host Rav Yehuda HaKohen. What's going on? And you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Please keep in mind that this show is completely listener funded and we don't want that to change. And donations can be made at www.visionmovement.org at the donate button up top. Okay, so today we're joined with Eitan Ben Avraham. Um, we're here to talk about Jewish masculinity, motivation, and beards. And Eitan, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little about what you do, about your brand, your products, etc. Sounds good, Renat. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And Yehuda, what's up? Hey, Eitan. Happy to have you on. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. So, who am I and what do I do? So, you know... At my essence, I would have to say that what I am is a Jew. And in terms of my brand, uh, it is called Aleph Male. And I launched it in 2017. And the term Aleph Male, you know, the the sort of hashtags that I associate with, with Aleph Male is Jewish masculinity, motivation, and beards. Uh, but really what it is, is it's a different vision of masculinity. Um, in particular, it's, it's a play on words because you have the term the alpha male. And the alpha male is based on a hierarchical map of how males relate to each other in which there's an alpha male and a beta male. And in particular, it's used to describe dynamics in the animal kingdom. Uh, and it's very easy to look at human dynamics and say, like Freud, you know, they're all based on survival, sex and power, and we live in a dog eat dog world. Mm -hmm. But really what Aleph Male is about is saying it's true that we can live on the level of animals, but we can also take the DOG and reverse it to the GOD. That actually we can also live like we're made in the image of God. And really, rather than being alpha males who are in this constant state of competition and jockeying to be, you know, the king of the mountain, we can be an aleph male in which we transcend that dynamic and we become givers, right? We take the, once again, we take the, the DOG and turn it into the GOD. And so the aleph male is really a different vision of masculinity in which, yes, we still have warrior energy. Yes, we still fully embrace masculinity, right? It's not about, it's not about erasing masculinity. It's not about going into many areas uh, of current discourse today in which masculinity is being shamed. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't like the term toxic masculinity, mainly because of its political connotations. But even before that, that term arose, I was already using the term in my conversations with people of fallen masculinity or exilic masculinity in the same way that the Shekhinah is in exile. So too, the divine masculine is in exile. And the way most men are showing up is not actually as their highest selves. And the term alpha male is really a reflection on, on that. Because if you think of yourself as a dog, if men are trained to think of themselves as dogs, right, then how are they trained to think of women? Mm -hmm. Right. It's just highly, highly problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, and so and so the Jewish vision of masculinity, it says in Bereshit that God created man in his image, man and women, he created them. So what does that mean? It means that there's such a thing as God's B'Tselem Elohim in its masculine form and in its feminine form, that there's actually such a thing as a 
divine masculine and a divine feminine that men and women are embodying. And part of the reason I wanted to start Aleph Male is because I wanted to affirm and declare that actually there is such a thing as masculinity and there is such a thing as Jewish masculinity. And it's entirely different vision from what we see in sort of the mainstream pop culture, who wants to be a billionaire, um, you know, gangster worship, uh, culture that that really pervades a lot of masculine narratives. <laughs> wow. Um, I want to know. So, in your opinion, what is Jewish sacred masculinity as opposed to today's Western idea of masculinity? Like, yeah. I think so. I think it, first of all, I just want to say I think that it's important once again to acknowledge that the 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 piece of truth in the alpha male narrative is warrior energy. And Aleph male is not about disowning warrior energy, wrapping back to your question of what's the difference. So the difference is that the warrior energy in Aleph male is really transcended and included in a bigger narrative, which is that of walking with God and really having a God-centered masculinity. Like if you take a look, really David Amelech is the archetype of this because David Amelech was an incredible warrior. Like you really did not want to cross him. Uh, but at the same time, he was also a lover and he also was able to admit when he made mistakes and do tshuva and he also wept and he also wrote poetry and he also danced. And it's a very different vision of what it means to be a man than the sort of unbreakable, unwoundable, constant, you know, the term is success object. There's a uh, there's a phrase that women are sex objects and that men are success objects. And that just as women, unfortunately, in sort of this fallen state of bo both masculinity and feminine are judged by their level of physical attractiveness, mm -hmm. right? Which is a form of objectification and a form of taking a human being who's multidimensional and making them one dimensional. So two men are turned into success objects in which really the question is how much money do they have and how powerful are they and how successful are they? And so then men feel the pressure to constantly perform within this context, which is one dimensional. And just as physical physicality and beauty are, uh, are like natural and good things, but are once again being taken and twisted. So too, it's the same thing with striving for success and being the best you can be. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but they've really become idols. That is not a reflection of, I think, the Jewish perspective of what masculinity is, which is really that once again, human beings are made in the image of God and that a man walks with God, a Jewish man, Shaviti Hashem Negi Tamid, constantly remembers God before him, that therefore changes his behavior because also his narrative is very different. His narrative is that wherever he's going, he's not walking alone. He's always walking with Hashem. And at the same time, that means he has a chiyuv. He has a responsibility to be a steward of the earth and to be a steward of everybody around him. And and to also guard Hashem's Torah, because again, uh, the the alpha male there, you know, depending besides sort of like the mainstream culture perception of the alpha male, you can even get into higher, higher understandings of the alpha male, which is that, well, the alpha male is really just a self-actualized male, right? That's what it means to be an alpha male. And so it's like, fine, uh, the, the, the real highest distinction is that the Aleph male is walking in the context of the Torah, is really walking 
with Hashem's Torah, but in an embodied way. And I think that's also a tikkun that needs to be made within the Jewish community. Right. I think when, you know, when you're describing the alpha male uh, as it exists in Western civilization today, you know, the rugged individual, unwoundable, etc. Uh, I'm I'm really hearing like I'm I'm picturing the biblical figure of Esav, and I think it's fitting that you know we see David as very much the tikkun, the correction of Esav, right? A lot of Esav's masculine traits, but directed properly uh, and with kedusha, and and that makes him more of a multi-dimensional human, right? That actually is what allows David to be multi-dimensional. That uh, I'm saying this as somebody with maybe more than a little bit of masculinity myself that like it's the confidence in one's masculine energy that allows them to behave in a way that superficially understood is non-masculine. You know what I mean? Yeah, actually Yehuda, in terms of in terms of that, I actually do perceive you as a person who really does channel a lot of warrior energy. And, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson has that quote, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war, right? Meaning it's good to be dangerous. There's certain contexts in which we need to be dangerous and it's not good to be willfully blind to the threats that are out there. At the same time, we don't want to live in a fear-based reality in which we sort of contract ourselves into a constant state of defensiveness. Like a bunker mentality. Exactly, exactly. But it's, it's you know, and, and that's really the balance of on the one hand holding the sword and on the other hand holding the olive branch. Um, but at the same time, I think the Aleph male is even bigger than that because the Aleph male has to go below the surface. I think that this is actually like a sort of like the Aleph male as really a mystical path because when I say walk with God, I don't just mean like having faith in some sort of God concept. And this is also what I meant when I used the word embodied. And really this is heading towards like Ruach HaKodesh and prophecy that when I say human beings are made in the image of God, and that like literally we can embody divine masculine. What I mean is that we can become channels for HaKodesh Baruch Hu in every single moment. And we can be watching in every single moment how Hashem is speaking to us through every single situation that we're in. And that an Aleph male who walks with God is literally serving Hashem in every single second, which also requires us to be present. Because if we're checked out, if we're disassociated, if we're trying to escape, then we're going to miss out on the cues that are coming from an awakened perspective. You mentioned that this warrior energy and that warrior energy and Jewish masculinity is walking with God. And I think the Western idea of masculinity is being God, like this indestructible, almost like non-human not able to make mistakes, not able to make errors. Um, this like perfect idea of a of a man versus the Jewish sacred masculinity is embracing that we are able to make mistakes um, or as men, it's important to be able to acknowledge that you will make a mistake and to include Hashem in your in your role and in your purpose um, and embracing that. Uh, also, you know, going back to some of the things you said earlier, I really see this conception, you know, you're right, there's this binary today in Western civilization uh, between like 
masculinity and non-masculinity, right? You know, th this notion of toxic masculinity where you're not supposed to be that anymore, which leaves a lot of men very confused, to be honest. And women. And okay, leaves a lot of women confused too. That that makes sense. But I, I think what, what you're talking about, Eitan, is not canceling out masculinity as, as many in the West are speaking about, but rather correcting it, rather channeling it properly. And I, I like that. And I think that what you're bringing here is a conversation that is really geula oriented. This is really like redemption oriented of, of trying to figure out, you know, we're in this, we're in this interesting moment in history where the fourth empire appears to be collapsing. Right, like part of this debate over masculinity going on in the imperial core is very much uh, symptomatic of the empire itself collapsing and Am Yisrael coming back to life, you know, as has been happening for the last century or so. And I think that, you know, we have to be careful because until now what Israel's been doing is just kind of like adopting a lot of the um, external tools of other civilizations, especially Western civilization, and trying to use those tools to advance, you know, at best to advance our objectives. Sometimes we're not even trying to advance our own objectives. But now what we need to really do is think about, we, we need to filter. We need to think about what tools are beneficial to our vision for this world, like actually achieving our vision for this world, and uh, what tools are not, and what tools can be cleaned. And when it comes to our own conception of masculinity, I mean, there's really a lot tied up in there because, you know, in ancient times, our ancestors appear to be, just from what we're shown, uh, it appears that our ancestors were very masculine, the men among them were very masculine figures. They were warriors, um, they were, were leaders, um, many of them were very dominant figures, but uh, we've had an experience that we can't ignore, and that's almost 2,000 years of exile and vulnerability, and in some cases, even internalizing the idea that masculinity doesn't belong to us, that it's foreign to us, that it's a Gentile trait. And it was really, I, I would actually credit Zev Jabotinsky with um, reminding us after roughly 1900 years that no, we could be that too. Like that is actually not foreign to us and, and we can possess that, we can own that. Um, but we need to learn how to do it right. And I think part of our problem today, a lot of the challenges around Israel's um, Israel's policies, place in the world, et cetera, today, is a discomfort with power, meaning we have power for the first time in 2000 years. Uh, and I think that very much parallels your, your point about masculinity. We have power for the first time in a long time. We're not really sure how to use it. We're not really comfortable with it. Um, we look at other models, whether it's models like the West, whether it's, you know, our neighbors here in the Semitic region or our ancestors in the Torah. And we're trying to figure out how to be properly masculine as us in a way that's authentic to us, in a way that's moral, uh, in a way that's just. And I think that's very relevant to the conversation about how we use power um, when attaining it for the first time in almost 2000 years. So, 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 just to to roll on that, like, so basically, you were talking about the connection between masculinity emerging in a new form, 
Jewish masculinity and also Jewish power and how there is a parallel between Jewish masculinity and Jewish power. How do we wield and channel Jewish masculinity and how do we wield Jewish power? And I was just going to ask, can you riff on that even more? Like, what's, what are your thoughts about that? Well, in, in terms of power, I think that we have this, you didn't see in Israeli society today and in the broader Jewish world, there is a discomfort with power. We haven't had it in a long time, um, which means we're not comfortable enough with it to use what I would call soft power. I'm a big fan of soft power. I'm a big fan of like being nice to people, you know, not giving anyone a reason to want to hurt me or want to mess with me. Uh, but at the same time, like, people knowing it's not a smart move, you know, like they would, they don't want to mess. Like, I think that's what we call soft power. And that's something that Israel hasn't really figured out. Uh, I, I think that uh, soft power would work a lot better in this part of the world or in most parts of the world than this like constant oscillation between like just hard power and uh, some conciliatory posture where we're willing to like even compromise on our own homeland. I think that uh, it would make a lot more sense to just be like, this is us, this is who we are, we're not budging from here, but we want to have a good relationship and we want you to have a good life. Uh, I, I don't yeah. think Israel's like in a position to even think like that right now. We kind of like oscillate between an abusive posture and an overly conciliatory posture. I think we overuse power with Palestinians, we underuse power on the international stage. I think there are Israelis who want to use power more, uh, who almost fetishize power. There are Israelis who are completely uncomfortable with power and, and a lot of diaspora Jews as well, who just want to like drop it and not have it and want to go back to an era when we didn't have to think about these things. And I think that one of the big challenges for us coming back to life uh, as a nation, you know, after 2000 years of not being in our land, not having political sovereignty, not having an army, not being able to make our own decisions or drive our own destiny, I think that we've become uncomfortable with power. And that's something we need to learn how to do properly in a healthy way. And, and I think the sooner we do that, not only the better will it be for us, but also for our neighbors and for the humans living under us. Hmm. You know, Yehuda, I, I'm ADDing for a second. I'm, I'm totally relating to what you're saying in terms of learning how to, how to, to sort of own, own Jewish power so that we can stop vacillating between extremes. Um, and one of the one of the terms that that you use to to talk about that is the idea of transcending the narrative, right? Okay. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but but that requires us to really be able to um, step outside of our own narratives and really. Uh, again, when I when I talk about transcending narratives, I'm, I'm defining narratives as something very specific, as like a collection of facts that are selectively chosen, contextualized within a certain ideological worldview, and organized to tell a certain story. So when we're aware of that, we're able to kind of step outside of it, look at other people's narratives kind of look at what might be true in these other narratives and try to um, try to hold both truths simultaneously, which I think is actually a very authentic Hebrew thing to do. I think it's also just common sense when you're not trying to be right. Mm -hmm. Like anyone who's looking for the truth just is looking for the truth and looking for the truth is, is being in a state of inquiry. <laughs> if you think you already have the answer and you already know, then you're no longer in a state of inquiry. I think that when people are having a discussion in a state of inquiry, 
then they're constantly searching for the truth, which means they're constantly reassessing um, or willing to reassess whatever narrative or vision they have in front of them in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to I want to take a left turn on this conversation because I want to I want to share something with you that I've been thinking about and, and hear what you think about it. Okay. Which is, you know, when I when I look online, I see that there's just more and more um, posturing and polarization, which is leading to more and more hate and fractionization and fear. Um, and one of the places that's happening is in the trans movement. And I um, I started Aleph Male in part because I saw that there was this tremendous shaming that was going on of men and masculinity and so i wanted to present a different vision but at the same time there's still a part there's there's a part of me that really finds the the ideology and it's really actually a, it's really a fanaticism um that's within the trans movement um there's a part of me that has a, a reaction to it that rejects it uh and so i catch myself going into polarization and that is not a state of consciousness which is not going which is going to lead towards geula towards redemption and so it hit me like rev cook talks about this idea that there's a piece of truth there's like a spark of truth in all of these different movements and you need to find that spark of truth in order to be able to then separate the wheat from the chaff and then you can begin to relate on a deeper level which is how rev cook was able to talk to kibbutzniks mm -hmm. Right. Because in terms of polarization and having a reason to be polarized and having a reason to be fearful, hateful and rejecting, Rav Kook could have easily looked at the pioneering Chalutzim who came here as his enemies. But he didn't. And the reason was, was because he was able to see the spark of truth in what it was that they were doing. And his, some of his incredibly profound tours are rooted in discussing that. And so I was thinking, okay, so then what's the spark of truth in the trans movement? And this is what I, I want to hear your thoughts about. The spark of truth in the trans movement is the idea that rigid understandings of masculine and feminine are no longer collectively serving the majority of human beings. That these sort of Barbie and Ken-like binaries that define much of what we call gender is not an accurate reflection of the true nature of human beings who contain both masculine and feminine which is where this concept of gender fluidity comes in and i think that there's a piece of truth to that i think that it's not accurate to just have these you know x and y's um divided in these separate boxes and it's like this you know and it's like masculine feminine and you know girls like pink boys like blue and that's how it's going to be forever and ever it's like well no some boys like pink and some girls like blue or some or maybe they like blue and pink you know or or whatever it is and that there's a piece of truth to that there's a piece of truth that men need to acknowledge their feminine side women have a masculine side and and being in corners is not really accurate to the human experience and i think that's the piece of truth that's within the trans movement. Um, the piece of falsehood is when you deny it entirely, when you deny that there's a masculine entirely and you deny that there's a feminine entirely and you can just sort of switch things up all based on what you identify with, 
which is actually, I think, rooted in nihilism. And also, I think there's a very strong aspect of disembodiment that a lot of the people who are sort of pushing this are actually disembodied and not actually feeling masculine or feeling feminine. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so radically deconstructing it. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Uh, I, I like your approach, meaning I like the way you are approaching the issue. I think it's a, a healthy way of engaging. And I, I have to think about your conclusions. You know, it's one of those topics that I haven't really done the work on myself, to be fair. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, we're living in a country where it's less, like, honestly, like, I know that a lot of our friends who are living in the diaspora are really living in a reality where this is much more central. And when I when I took my son to get his U.S. passport a yeah. couple of weeks ago on the actual U.S. passport forms, mm -hmm. you could be male, female or non-gendered. OK, on the passport forms, it's reached this level of entrenchment. First of all, that doesn't bother me. It just, I guess, less relevant to me. Uh, just like the world I live in, the people I interact with on a daily basis. Um, right. Certainly in like the mountains, you know, I'm, I'm living in like the mountains north of Jerusalem. There's no real conversation like that taking place here. Certainly not in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm sure there are parts of Tel Aviv where people talk about this a lot. Uh, but it's really perceived here as much more of like a Western phenomenon. And I think a lot of people, a, a lot of people here, I think without giving it as much thought as you're giving it and, and without really, and I think it's good you're doing that. I think it's really good that you're doing the work of trying to figure out what is Hashem doing here? What's going on in history? Why is this important? Like, because I think that's like the real, like, for example, you know, just like I think European nationalism was placed into the world at a certain time, at a certain point in history in order that, the people of Israel would like rediscover our national consciousness. You know, I, I think that a lot of like post-colonial ideas are also coming into the world now. The whole post-colonial framing is something that Israel needs as well. Uh, so then you're looking at this other phenomenon going on and this uh, attack on masculinity and deconstruction of gender and saying, well, something important is happening here too. Let's figure out what that is and, and let's figure out how we can make this useful to advancing our vision for this world, like the vision of our ancestors, our prophets and sages, how can this thing that's taking place um, contribute to that? I think that's really the right way to approach this. And I think the way most people are here, where I live, are approaching this issue is, oh, look how the empire is collapsing. They, they don't even know what a man and a woman are anymore. You know, like, I think that's like kind of what we hear from a lot of Israelis who are looking from the outside at Western civilization and saying, wow, this is really collapsing quickly. We, we should just get away from this, which is also true. I mean, I do believe that Israel should separate itself from U.S. empire. But I think there's more than just looking at a civilization collapsing going on here. Mm. Yeah, I want to interject and say, based on what we've discussed so far, um, this like westernized idea of masculinity. I mean, previously you mentioned that this warrior energy and that warrior energy and Jewish sacred masculinity is is walking with God. And I think the Western idea of masculinity is being God, like this indestructible, um, almost like non-human, um, this like perfect idea of a of a man. And on that note, I want to circle it back 
to um, speaking more specifically about the significance of beards in, mm. in Torah and in Jewish history. Um, and I wanted to ask you first, what is Jewish beard culture? Because you said it previously and I just wanted you to expand on that. And then I wanted to get a little bit more into the spiritual significance of beards in the Torah. So. Rina, thank you so much for asking that question. What is Jewish beard culture? Uh, Jewish beard culture goes back thousands of years. King David had a beard. Moses had a beard. The beard is discussed in Kabbalistic concepts. The idea that the beard, according to the Zohar, represents the 13 attributes of divine mercy that on Yom Kippur, uh, when we're praying in shul, that we're chanting that Hashem is uh, merciful and patient and compassionate and kind, all of these different attributes of God. The Zohar teaches that in a man, the part of his body, which is a channel for those character traits, is his beard, uh, which is a mind-blowing concept. And also there's an idea that as, as the hairs grow out of a man's face, they are actually like roots that are growing from heaven into our world through his face, if you can imagine that. Right, that the, that the higher levels of reality grow their roots down into our world through a man's beard for men. Um, and I can say for myself that when I started growing my beard in 2015, I went to Uman and I saw this guy davening and he had like this flaming red beard and he was really kind of the Jewish wild man. There's a concept in men's work of the wild man and the wild man has not been domesticated. And this guy was like a Jewish wild man in that it was just clear that he did not care what anybody thought except God. That's 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 he was like walking with God. He was davening and I could and he had this flaming red beard and I had this visceral response to seeing him of like, I want to be like that guy, but I'm afraid to be like that guy because it was like he had thrown off the shackles of like normative conformity. And I decided I wanted to grow a beard. So I came back to Israel and I started growing a beard. And then at my workplace, I started getting comments that my beard is too long. And at the time I was wearing polo shirts to work, which was fine. Um, so I decided I'm not trimming my beard, but I will start using product and I'll start wearing button down shirts. So originally I was going to, uh, I went online to look for beard oil. But I actually, in my own past, many, 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 many Arab Shabbos, I always used to take a little bit of olive oil and a little bit of essential oil, usually lavender, and just put it in my beard. And I was thinking to myself, why don't I just make my own beard oil? And so I started making my own beard oil. And then I started making my own beard balm. And then I went back to Uman in 2016. And I... Um, Actually, you know, wait, don't quote me on it. It was actually 2015 and 2007, sorry, 2016, 2017. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I got married in 2018 and it was in 2017 that I started Aleph Male, 
and went to Uman selling beard oil and beard balm. And that mm -hmm. was, and then I, I launched Aleph Mail basically on June, around June 17th, June 18th, 2017. And on June 17th, 2018, I got married. And so much of the transformation in my own life actually had to do with growing my beard. Because also, again, going back to talking about masculinity and shame, because I grew up overweight and in a in a sort of hyper-sexualized uh, culture where unless you have six-pack abs, then like you actually have like a moral problem and like you're flawed as a human being. For me, having like a big belly was like, you know, I was like the white whale in Moby Dick. I was just like picked on a lot around my weight. Uh, and so I had like a disconnection from my body and in growing my beard, it was like actually bridging the gap between my head and through my neck into the rest of my body. That somehow growing a beard actually allowed me to become a more embodied human being and a more embodied man. Before we get too far afield, I, I just wanted to throw something out there about Jewish beard culture or the role of beards in Hebrew society. Uh, because, you know, we're not told explicitly that like every Hebrew male has a beard, but uh, that is hinted to if you look at the 10th chapter of the second book of Shmuel, you know, there's a story where David sends a couple ambassadors to the Ammonite kingdom. And the Ammonites are suspicious of David and believe that he's like planning to attack, maybe conquer their territory. And one of the things they do to um, provoke David is they shave half the faces of his ambassadors, right? Each ambassador has half of his face shaved. So he's got like half a beard and they're sent back to Jerusalem. But what happens next is they go into seclusion. These two ambassadors go into seclusion in the city of Yericho in Jericho uh, until their beards grow back. Meaning there's no option of just kind of like shaving off the other half. Meaning it's implied there that all of the men in ancient Israel had beards and to not have a beard would be something very odd to the point that these two guys would rather go into seclusion until the, the parts of their beard that were shaven off grew back rather than walk around clean shit. And I think that kind of points to uh, a reality in ancient Hebrew society where it was pretty abnormal for a man not to have a beard. I, I would agree with you. It was pretty abnormal for a man not to have a beard. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe is frequently uh, qu quoted um, talking about how whenever you think about any of our prophets or of our teachers, they all had beards. Um, the Chafetz Chaim, when asked whether or not you could trust the, the like, whether or not a, a Shochet had Yirat Shemayim, was, was whether or not he had a beard. And also, you know, a few days ago was the 28th of Sivan, which celebrated the Lubavitcher Rebbe's uh, landing in the United States after escaping from Europe. And on the ship's manifest, I don't think it's coincidence that the 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 moniker used to describe the Lubavitcher Rebbe, because like they there was sort of a defining characteristic of every single person on the ship, and like how how are they identified? And the identification of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Menachem Nil Schneerson, Zichron Livracha, was wears a beard. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. But so Rina, what do you think about all of this? Rina, you ready to grow a beard? 
Um, I'm not there yet. Uh, it's really interesting. Like I, you know, you, you walk through the streets of Jerusalem and you do, I think just from a, at least a woman's perspective, like I do find myself um, looking at men differently in terms of like a respect thing and kind of, um, there's something like a man with a beard versus without a beard, like there's something, there's something to it. I, you trust a man with a beard more? I don't know about trust, but there's more of like, yeah, maybe a trust, like I, I would assume that he would respect me and I would respect him and there would be like um, a mutual understanding of kind of like Torah and just. You're like, talking about a guy who's wearing a beard who's also wearing a kippah. Um, could be also. No, like just first impressions of people and, and, and the way we, we view each other, like that's your immediate um, uh, feeling that you get from them. So yeah, it does take account. Like if I do see a man walking in, in the streets with a beard, a kippah and tzitzit, I'm going to experience them differently than a man without those three things. Um, it, yeah, it even has to do, in my opinion, with like, like safety wise, like the way I feel um, around a man, like that's, it would make me feel more comfortable. I think one of the things that might make this, I don't know if this makes things easier or more difficult, but we're living at a, a specific moment in history where beards are fashionable. I mean, I know that even 15, 20 years ago, beards were not that fashionable, whereas today they very much are. Today uh, they're trendy, like in, in like specifically the Western world, like it's like hipster to have a beard, like you're, you're part of this, uh, I don't know if it's like millennials or Gen Z that uh, mm -hmm. like they're kind of dude. Right. So that's something that has maybe made it easier for some Jews to grow beer, especially Jews who travel, you know, in between worlds and maybe spend a lot of time um, in the outside world or, or the less like Torani Jewish world. It's made it easier to like wear a beard and, and to like not be self-conscious of that making you some kind of like uh, relic. Whereas I think that uh, even 20 years ago when I when I moved here, um, you know, to have like a big beard meant something. And it, like, it was like a statement that, and I think it was scary for some people. I think like, I know that for example, even like working in politics here, there was kind of like this idea, whether we're talking about like the Knesset or the World Zionist Organization or the Jewish Agency, it was like completely acceptable to like wear a kippah, but like to have a beard, especially like, I don't mean just like some hair on your face, I mean to have like a beard was uh, was considered like, oh, that must be somebody with very extreme political positions. That must be somebody who's violent, meaning the perception in the national institutions is somebody with a beard is representing an ideology that should be feared, that is somewhat threatening. Do you feel that today, um, this is for Nathan as well, like in men's culture in general, like it's more socially acceptable to have a beard. So you see more men growing them. Oh yeah, like oh yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll tell you the place where I see it the most is in advertising. Mm -hmm. at, uh -huh. at this point in advertising, uh, all over the place on websites, on Instagram, on Facebook, I see men with beards, it, it, like all over. It's like the, in fact, it's almost seems as if like the majority, and I'm not even talking about advertising for beard products. I'm talking about advertising for startups or advertising, you know, for different jobs in any number of spheres of the business world, the men who are depicted have beards. 
it's it's be, it's definitely become much more socially acceptable to have a beard for sure right and it used to be much more revolutionary i mean when you think about the people who have beards when it's not fashionable when it's not trendy we're talking about like serious torah jews we're talking about serious muslims um, we're also talking about a lot of Marxists. Remember, like Karl Marx wore a pretty big beard, and I think that mm -hmm. a lot of like revolutionaries, you know, generations later, you know, it's like a leftist statement to have like a big beard. Like, oh, like, like you could say Che Guevara or Castro. Well, Castro more than Che. Che, che had trouble growing a beard. You could see from Che's face, it's a little bit patchy, mm -hmm. but. But certainly Fidel, yeah, like, so basically the common thread there between like real Torah Jews, Muslims, Marxists is this like revolutionary ideology. Like it's a very revolutionary statement by a man to grow a beard, to wear a beard. And, and in terms of that revolutionary statement of having a beard, that common thread that you described, there's also many times if you look at the advertising and marketing of beard companies out there that are selling beard oil and beard balm, there's often some sort of narrative of like growing a beard is going to give you superpowers. And it's usually done within a humoristic context. Mm -hmm. But I think that what they're tapping into underneath is actually the Jewish perspective, going back to Jewish beard culture, that the beard is connected to self-actualization. The Talmud says that, that the beard is the hadros panim, is like the, the ornament of a man's face. Interesting. There's this sacredity in uh, in Torah about hair, like even for women, like us covering our hair, there's this like, deeper divinity to it. Yeah, hair is very much connected to sacredness. There's actually a story about the Babasali. The Babasali, um, when asked about whether or not he approved of using um a pout like a sort of powder or a cream to remove the um beard from a man's face because it's not a form of cutting said that it's like a form of poison he was extremely extremely against trimming the beard and there are stories about the babasali that he actually prayed to hashem to allow him to grow a full beard because he had a patchy beard and he wanted to have a full beard and he prayed to hashem to allow him to have a, a complete beard mm -hmm. wow so Che could have done that. Well, you know, it's like the I, 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 deal times a million. But I think that there really is an understanding in Jewish culture that that the beard is not just a, a not just a fashion statement, but just as like every single limb of our body is here to serve Hashem for a man that includes his beard. Hmm. All right. So you mentioned advertising a couple times, um, but I don't want to forget to mention that you actually are doing something in this space. Like you have a beard balm, you have a beard oil that, That's right. that, that I use. I, I want to just like let listeners know, like I am a big fan of your beard balm, uh, specifically the Sukkot flavor. Um, mm. but, but I know you have a number of flavors uh, that are available. They all have different scents. The truth is I like the Sukkot flavor because my wife likes the Sukkot flavor. <laughs> What's the scent of the Sukkot flavor? The, the scent of the Sukkot is it's, it's just inspired by the holiday of Sukkot and it's lemon, lemongrass, mint, and hadas, or what's known as myrtle. Um, so the lemon is for the etrog. Etrog is like prohibitively expensive in terms of essential oils. It's like literally thousands of dollars for right. like an ounce. So that's not, that's not something that is, makes sense from a business perspective. 
Um, so instead of the etrog, I'm using uh, the essential oils of lemon, as well as lemongrass, because you don't want it to smell like a bathroom cleaner. Mm -hmm. um, hadas, which is which is myrtle, um, as well as mint, because often you, you go into Sephardi shuls and, and they'll have like different visamim that you can make a bracha on. So that's the inspiration. But just to give some background, um, you know, it, we're talking that fragrance also applies to the beard oil. Um, there are four different fragrances. Well, actually, no, at this point, we now have six. Um, there's Sukkot. There is Boker Tov, which is lavender, cedar, and bergamot. There's Havdalah, which is cinnamon and cloves, because often when we make Havdalah, we'll use cinnamon and cloves to make Havdalah. Um, there is cedar, like the cedars of Lebanon, like Erez Lebanon, which is just plain cedar. Um, there's King's Blessing, which is jasmine and sage. And then we have Unscented. And you'll notice that every single fragrance that I mentioned was an actual organic compound because I only use 100% natural ingredients. Um, so there's nothing artificial in any way, shape or form. Are these sourced um, in Israel? In these oils and bombs. The, so depending on the product, I actually have a new product that is 100% sourced in Israel, which I call Absolute Israel Beard Oil. And it's mm -hmm. olive oil, jojoba oil, argan oil, and um, almond oil, all grown and harvested and pressed or distilled here in on Israeli farms. Um, so that is actually a, a new beard oil that's out. That's like a, a premium line. And then in terms of our, our traditional, our traditional um, blends, the olive oil, the jojoba oil um, are both from Eretz Israel, and that's both in the balm and the oil. And then also in the balm, there's also beeswax from Eretz Israel. And, and that's really what I want to do is I want to reboot the conversation about Jewish masculinity and about beards uh, through the brand. And Baruch Hashem, I've had a very, very strong response. A lot of people love the products. A lot of women actually also um, love the fragrances. And really, you know, men's beards can be scraggly. Men's beards get dry. Men's, the skin under men's beards gets um, itchy and you can get like a dandruff on the cheeks or what's called beardruff and Aleph male helps to solve these problems. Um, you know, I can speak from personal experience that if I don't use Aleph male for a few days, my beard really starts to bother me. It starts to get itchy and it just doesn't feel the same as when I'm using the products because it really makes the hairs. Like I say, the beard is greater than the sum of its hairs. So when you use the oil or the balm, it really brings the hairs into alignment and, a, and it gives aesthetically a greater sense of symmetry. Um, but also the, the moisturizers, the shea butter, the olive oil, the jojoba oil, you know, and I'm talking about the balm right now, like really do wonders for making a beard feel soft as opposed to feeling dry and scraggly. Right. Amazing. And where can, uh... Where can everyone find these products? So, so best places on the website, www.alephmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can email me at aton at You can call me if you just want to talk about the products at 054-942-0141. I'm very open. Um, and really, this is, this is about a Jewish beard revolution. You know, it's it's really about reclaiming the the Mashiach, like the term Mashiach, like Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. What does Mashiach come from? It comes from Meshiche. What does Meshiche mean? It means anointed. What is the Messiah anointed with? 
oil, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing with reintroducing beard oil into the Jewish world is not actually something new. All I'm doing is, is, is really making a remez to a part of our culture that I said has been around for thousands of years. Also in Psalm 23, right? We say, Dishanta Vashemen Roshi, right? Kosi Rivayai, right? That like, that like my head will run with ever fresh oil, right? So it's like really like the, the idea of, of, of men using oil on their head and in their beards is, is all over the place within, within Jewish culture. No, for sure. And I really appreciate you kind of concentrating it and bringing it back. And not just the fact that you're providing us with great products for our beards, but I like the messaging behind it. I like this conversation about the Aleph male versus the Alpha male, especially at this point in history. I think that's very relevant right now and very helpful in terms of helping us to, to really to decolonize. Like, I think really to go through this kind of like post-colonial process that uh, we're going through like at this point in our national development it's helpful to have more and more and more of these conversations so i really uh, appreciate what you're doing and i wish you success in in your corner of the sphere which is a really important corner and it's a relevant corner to me as a man who proudly wears a beard well you definitely have a beard to be proud of you huda rena thank you so much for having me thank you this has been a very amazing conversation very interesting um, I wish I could have chimed in a little bit more about the beards, but I can't grow one myself. But I have one more thing that I want to talk about. But I yeah, guess yeah, let's do it. it. Let's do it. Um, so something that I've kind of been thinking about and discussing for a while now. I mean, Bezrat Hashem, when I have a family and if I have sons, um, it seems like a very hard, hard way to maneuver how you raise your sons in today's society um balancing the masculinity like how do you how would you raise i don't know if you have sons or daughters i have two boys actually beautiful um and this is for Ravi Huda as well like how would you like what, what's the most important key aspects to instill in raising sons specifically through a jewish sacred masculinity sort of uh well I'll, I'll i'll tell you one of the one of the things that i i talk about is that like that the aleph male respects and honors the feminine mm -hmm. right and 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 that's not just some nod to feminism it can be the feminine within themselves as well it can be the feminine within themselves but just the whole concept that the shekhinah is in exile mm -hmm. and that we're praying that the shekhinah return to jerusalem the shekhinah is the feminine the divine feminine Right. So it's like the Shekhinah is in exile. This is a problem as, as you know, if you live within the Jewish culture, you are familiar with this concept. Right. So then we as men, it behooves us to respect and honor the feminine so that the Shekhinah can come out of exile. So so that's one piece in terms of Jewish sacred masculinity and and what I am teaching my sons. Uh, and then and then another piece is really the concept of of being of service like the you know i i recently started talking to my son um you know like people talk about like a boss like it's like a, a slang like man you know you you made that shot like a boss you know it's yeah. like a little piece of slang right so so i introduced the term for my son like a melech nice. right right where it's like you know you just did that like a melech 
you know, and, and what I want to do going back to Yehuda talking about decolonization is just really reintroducing these same concepts that are in Jewish culture, but, but they're not talked about and they're not used, you know, so that if my son grows up with the concept like a Melech, it's like, well, actually, what is a Melech? A Melech is a servant of the people. Right. So, so it's, it's being aware and, and just taking the ingredients that are within Judaism that are sort of dormant and putting them in the pan with some spices and some olive oil and mm -hmm. like frying them up with some beautiful Jewish masculinity sauce and revealing their flavor. I like it. It's a very holistic approach. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, Eitan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. All right. If you'd like to find any of the Aleph Mail products online, you can go to alephmail.com. A-L-E-P-H-M-A-L-E.com. Yeah. And please keep in mind that this show is completely listener funded and we don't want that to change. Donations can be made at visionmovement.org at the donate button up top. Yeah. This is uh, Yudaha Kohen with Rina Bateliao of the Vision Movement. And you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Okie doke. If listeners are interested in checking out the show notes to this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage eight zero.